Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's National Parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 19.2. This is the second episode in our series on Yosemite National Park. I speak with park ranger Eric Westerlund about the biodiversity of the park, exploring nature through art, and ranger Eric teaches me to yodel. Be sure to check out upcoming episodes in this Yosemite series, including conversations about the famous 1903 camping trip with President Roosevelt and John Muir, Buffalo Soldiers, Ansel Adams, mountain climbing, and much more. We also want to hear about your adventures. Do you have a story to tell about your family's experience at a national park? A favorite recommendation to share or how this podcast helped enrich your trip? Email us at hello at everybody'snps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybody'snps.com. Before I get to today's topic, I want to take a moment to talk about listener support. If you are already a patron of the podcast, Thank you so much, and feel free to skip ahead one minute to today's conversation. If you are not yet a patron and you want to hear my thoughts on this topic, here they are. This podcast is a labor of love. We were looking for a podcast that would help us in planning our family trips to national parks. We could not find one, and so we decided to create the podcast we were looking for. I ask you this question, has this podcast brought you value? If so, would you consider becoming a patron by offering financial support? Patreon is a platform that allows for recurring monthly support for as low as a dollar per month. You may find a link on our website, everybody'snationalparks.com, to support the show. Thank you to all of our patrons. Now let's get to the conversation. I am here today with Yosemite National Park Ranger Eric Westerland who has worked as a naturalist in Yosemite since 1992. He spends most of his free time studying the natural history of Yosemite's birds, plants, and insects, and he is an avid observer of all that is beautiful. He is known to carry a copy of an illustrated flora of Yosemite National Park, which is an eight-pound hardcover book on his backcountry hikes. He is also a musician and a self-proclaimed armchair art critic and has performed at the Yosemite Theater. Hi, Ranger Eric. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Danielle. So, Eric, let's just hear about your background and what you do at the park. I was a double major, biology and English, and graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. And right out of college, I started to sell men's clothing in a high-class department store in in, uh, Rochester, Minnesota. And I was absolutely miserable. That was not the original plan. Um, but uh, luckily, ran into a buddy, and he worked as a naturalist up in northern Minnesota. And he, I asked him, well, what's a naturalist? And he said, well, I take people out for walks, and I give talks about the natural and cultural history of the north woods of Minnesota. And I thought, well, you know what? I think I could do that. Most of the classes I took in college were all those ology classes, you know, the ornithology and, you know, dendrology and all those, all those classes that got you outside. 
long story short, uh, I was able to get a job at this place called uh, Wolf Ridge Environmental Learning Center. And I worked there for a couple of years and then took a job in Colorado at a place called Keystone Science School. And then in 92, I came to Yosemite and initially started working for what was called Yosemite Institute and uh, as a field naturalist. And then in 2001, I started to work for the National Park Service as a ranger naturalist and have been happily employed with the Park Service ever since. Wonderful. And what is your favorite part of working at Yosemite? Oh, man. One part is just, well, just being in Yosemite, of course, but turning people on to the the wonders of the natural world. That is my favorite part. To see the expression of someone's face the first time they've come across a a bird or a plant or a, a view that they've never seen before, that's what really drives me. Nice. And you have a great way of doing that. Do you want to talk about some of your creative ways that you engage visitors and get them to love and appreciate all things nature at Yosemite? I get bored very quickly. And so I work better uh, in a spontaneous mode. So it might be bringing in, uh, I love pop culture references. Any way I can engage whoever I'm with, connecting I'm talking about the plant, the animal, the bug, too, like a pop culture reference is always fun. Sometimes that means impersonations. Sometimes that means singing songs, doing a little mini drama, sometimes giving riddles. There's all kinds of different ways to do it, but but it's whatever strikes me, whatever pops into my head at the time. And oftentimes people will say, hey, remember when you did this thing or that thing? And Oftentimes, I won't even have a recollection just because I'm always trying to just move forward. It's whatever mood strikes me and whatever method strikes me. So do you have a, a mood or method that strikes you right now by chance? <laughs> I should have brought my guitar in here. You know, I, I need something in front of me. I need some object or something like that. To, to uh, Basically, I'm reacting to something whether it's sight, sound, or smell, see what I can do. Lacking, <laughs> lacking that inspiration in your office right now. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could be out on a walk with you right now. Is your guitar handy? It's in my car. I actually brought it in, and I just didn't. I was running late, so I didn't get a chance to bring it in. But oh. um, Well, where do you typically lead your ranger walks? I assume that you probably meet outside the visitor center. So are, are you most often walking in Cook's Meadow? Oh, yeah. Simply because that's the closest meadow to, to the visitor center. We'll, we'll meet here and then I'll take people out. Oh, I've got something I can share with you. It, this is more of an acapella thing. But one of the other things that I do, and this is fairly unique. There's a couple other parks that do this, but one of my duties is giving a, a tram tour. I, did you get a chance to go on one of the open air trams when you when you guys were here? We didn't. And we did think about it, but my kids, all they wanted to do was bike ride. And so we, we sacrificed not doing the tram tour and instead doing lots of bike riding. We did a ranger walk in Mariposa Grove with a park ranger. And then we did many programs that were through Yosemite Conservancy. 
Uh-huh. Well, these tram tours, basically the trams fit 60 people. And so 60 strangers all on a tram. And I basically got them for two hours. Right. I have to try to bring this group together. And so one of the icebreakers that I have that this kind of addresses, how do you get people interested, is I tell them that, well, you know, you are in one of the great mountain ranges on the planet, and we're going to be communicating with one another for the next couple hours. Then I pose the question, do you know how you traditionally communicate in the mountains? And just about every time people get the, get the answer, do you know the traditional form of communication in mountains, Danielle? Oh, I'm going to take a wild guess. My guess is yodeling. You got it. You got <laughs> it. So I, uh, I give people a, a very quick little yodeling lesson. Excellent. And um, would, would you like a quick little yodeling lesson? Absolutely. Have you yodeled before? I have not. Oh, this is great. <laughs> okay, so they call it breaking your voice. Um, and essentially what you're doing is you're just toggling between vowels. So we're going to do this call and repeat. Uh-oh, I have a terrible voice. <laughs> That's the beauty of yodeling. It's okay. So repeat after me. Heidi A. Heidi A. Odele. Odele. Uh-oh. Odele. And I'm going to call that good right there. You got the idea. Uh, and we, I extend that out. And I'll tell you, if there's one thing that makes people a little bit more comfortable, it's when you are just a little bit silly. If you're not afraid to be a little silly in front of the group, it makes them at ease. And, oh, my gosh, to get a whole group, 60 people yodeling, nothing's better. Oh, that is fantastic. So if people want to be on one of your tram tours, do you have a set time or it just depends every day it's a different ranger? Yeah, it, every day it's a different ranger. It's just kind of luck of the draw. I'd say all our rangers are great and every one of us have a little little something up our sleeve to get people to laugh or chuckle. Right, but they don't all yodel. <laughs> Uh, that's probably true. <laughs> well, that sounds like a lot of fun. So we had talked offline about your program that you did in the Yosemite Theater and that you also do, I think you said now at the campground, combining art and learning about the nature of Yosemite. Do you want to talk about that program if it is indeed still available for visitors? I love this program. Uh, and let me tell you why. First of all, what inspires me as, as a ranger naturalist here is those things that don't get a lot of attention. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm inspired by bears and coyotes and all that great stuff. But I'm especially excited about the things that don't get a lot of attention that that are in plain sight. And that essentially was the inspiration behind this program that I put together. So I'll, I'll paint you a little picture. I work in this museum building, the first museum in the National Park Service called the Indian Museum. And my office is on the second floor. And hanging in the hallway is this poster. The poster was created by Charlie Harper. 
And the poster is of Glacier Bay, one of our great parks in Alaska. Now, when I started working here, I, I would, you know, to this day, it's still hanging just down the hall. I would pass this poster and it always caught my eye, but I didn't think much more of it than that. But long story short, I did some work on the, the Unigrid map. That's Park Service talk for all those glossy maps that you get at all national parks. In fact, those are called Unigrids. One side is map, the other side is, let's call it fun facts. So I was flown out to Harper's Ferry to put this together. And as a thank you, they said, hey, here is our publications room. As, as a thank you, why don't you, you know, take whatever books or, that you want? Well, I took a couple books and I saw Charlie Harper's posters. And at that time, I was just starting a, a family. And I thought, oh, these will look great in my kids' room. So Charlie was commissioned by the National Park Service to create these posters and I brought them back. One of those 10 posters is called the Sierra Range. And in 1990, it was produced as kind of a birthday card for Yosemite, Sequoia, and Kings Canyon National Parks, all celebrating their 100th birthday in 1990. Uh, The magic of, did you say you've got kids? I do, a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. Oh my gosh. If you uh, haven't looked at Charlie Harper's posters yet, you have to with your kids. And the, the beauty of his posters are, are this. If you like I Spy or if your kids like Where's Waldo, yes, you will love Charlie Harper because he has pictures embedded. They're hidden in, in the poster. So a lot of them are obvious, but, but some are very, very, very well hidden. So the Sierra Range poster I put in my daughter's room. And, you know, I kind of pride myself. I'm... I, humble uh, authority on on Sierra Nevada natural history. I still have a lot to learn, but I know a, a thing or two. Well, she kept coming back to this one particular image and she would say, hey, dad, what is this? And I couldn't answer her question. And not until one time I was playing with her on the floor and I looked at the poster upside down, I finally figured out what that hidden image was. And that was literally years, years of looking at that poster and that was kind of the the inspiration behind, oh, this could actually be really fun. If this is fun for my daughter, and it was fun for me as an adult, got to be fun for everyone. And so I put this program together. The program is, it's one part, essentially, you're, you're learning the natural and cultural history of the Sierra Nevada mountain range along with Yosemite, but you're also learning the genius behind this this amazing artist who, in my opinion, does not get enough credit or enough attention. And if you come to my program, it's one part musical, it's one part game show, and it's one part, you know, just good information. It's it's entertainment and it's education. And that's the funnest way to, to learn, I think. Absolutely. I read an article about this program on the Yosemite Conservancy website. And then I also saw that you did this program at a charter school. Yeah. And it it sounded like the kids really reacted to it and enjoyed it. So I have to ask, what was this image that took you guys years to figure out? Well, I don't think I'm giving too much away because you can look for it yourself, but it's a squirrel, a little Douglas tree squirrel. Okay. And I will invite you and your listeners to look at the Sierra Range poster by Charlie Harper. 
and see if you can find a Douglas tree squirrel. A nickname for the Douglas tree squirrel is a chicory. We'll see how many of your listeners can find it. Yes. I remember learning about chicories when we were in Mariposa Grove with the giant sequoias. Yeah. (laughs) They're the ones that will scold you and you usually hear them before you see them. They're very animated. So it's great that Charlie put that animal in the poster because it is definitely symbolic of the, of the Sierra. So if people want to attend this program, how would they find it? Take an extra step and either call our public information office or just go to our visitor center desk and just ask, when is Ranger Eric giving his evening program? Okay. In the paper, it just kind of has this generic Ranger program. So you need to ask for me specifically. Okay. So that is a good tip. And I'm giving it most of the summer. So yeah, there's a pretty good chance they, if they ask that, any Ranger will be able to tell them where and when. Okay. Excellent. Well, I will definitely do that the next time we're there. We were there kind of an odd week where there were programs listed and then it would say in small letters, except for the week that we were there. (laughs) Yeah, you probably came in the spring, our shoulder season. Yeah, we were there in May. It was like the one week of 70 degrees in between snowstorms. (laughs) Ooh, you lucked out. We really lucked out. We did. So... Let's paint a picture of, you know, people think of Yosemite, they think of big granite cliffs and waterfalls, but what are things that people should look for in nature when they're walking around and hiking and obviously ooing and eyeing waterfalls in spring and the cliffs, but there are lots of little things. They might see bears in the field, but then there's other things like dragonflies. What are, what are some of your favorite things to point out to people? Great question. And a lot of that depends upon the season. So when people are are visiting. And so that's a lot of what I do, taking the opportunity to take advantage of whatever sort of phenological event is occurring. Are, Are you familiar with that word phenology? Yes, I am, because that word just came up in my saguaro series. I just wrapped up a series on Saguaro National Park, and there was a a phenology study that they were doing about the saguaro cactus. But I I don't think most people know what it means. I'll leave you to give the definition. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I mean, my definition is simply what is happening that particular time of year in that season. So... When are the poppies going to bloom? When are the dogwood flowers going to bloom? When do I hear my first spring migrant? When are the orange crown warblers coming back to the Sierra? That sort of thing. And to me, being a naturalist is is all about just simply making observations and then connecting people to to those things. So some of the the sorts of things that, uh, you know, of course, are wildflowers around here in the valley taking people for meadow walks and, you know, showing them Western as it like, look beautiful, which is this great, it's, it's a bush that likes it fairly wet and they produce these fairly large white blossoms with a nice yellow stripe, little nectary guide, if you will, showing the, the bugs where to find the nectar. And they just have the most wonderful perfume, the, the, the smell of that. And uh, along with our, our Western wallflowers, can you say the name of that first one? 
Oh, uh, Western Azalea. Oh, okay. It's a member of uh, the Heath family, the Ericaceous plants. The, the Ericaceae, of course, that's my favorite plant family. You've got the blueberries and the cranberries and all these really cool, a lot of edible, but a lot of very interesting, funky, funky plants that grow in that plant family. Getting people connected with what's blooming, and that can be flowers. Uh, I'm really getting into fungus and finding mushrooms that are fruiting and birds that are singing. So if you're going to go for a walk with me, that's that's the sort of stuff that we're going to try to bring out. But it also depends upon the actual walk. Our ranger walks are, are themed. And so, you know, there's geology walks and there's what we call discovery walks, which could be plants or animals. We have tree walks. That's pretty obvious. We've got Native American history and pioneer history, what we call legacy walks, um, river walks. So, uh, so there's a, a general theme to all our ranger walks. And I do my darndest to stay on topic, but I can never guarantee that. I love to digress. <laughs> Which you have probably already uh, discovered. <laughs> right. Well, how about we take a walk through the seasons and maybe you just give us some highlights through the seasons. If you want to start with spring or whichever season you want to start with. Let's start right now. How does summertime sure. start? Uh, <laughs> since we're right, we're right in the thick of it right now. So the, and I'll just preface this with season here is not necessarily by time of year, but it's more like elevation. Well, it's a little bit of both. But, you know, right now it's summer in the valley, but it's spring up in Tuolumne Meadows, up at the, the high elevations. So we're just getting our our first wildflowers blooming at those higher elevations. Whereas down here in the valley, uh, and for your listeners' education, Yosemite Valley floor, where I'm talking to you from, is 4,000 feet above sea level. When I talk about Tuolumne Meadows, I'm talking about 8,600 feet above sea level, and Tioga Pass is almost 10,000 feet above sea level. And so you can get whatever season you want, just depending upon where you go. And so right now, we're kind of at the tail end of our cow parsnip, um, these tall clusters of flowers blooming here, and all the trees have leafed out, and birds are finishing their or getting close to finishing their, their nesting or in the middle of it. This winter, we had an exceptional snowpack, a lot of snow. And so the waterfalls are just still going strong right now. And, and so that, you know, is, is the big attraction here in the valley. As things start to progress, um, fall colors will start to hit sometime in October, you know, mid to later October. And that's when it finally starts to cool down. So for people who are visiting, we have not experienced a lot of heat yet, but that is going to come any day now. So if you come to the Valley visiting July, August, September, it's going to be hot. Luckily, it's dry heat. But once we get into later October, it really starts to cool down. And later October is when the crowds start to cool down too. So if you want to come here and visit and not, experience bigger crowds later October is is when you start to, to come here. And the oaks start to turn this beautiful yellow-brown. The dogwood trees, the leaves start to turn this pinkish red. 
course, the, the grasses and the meadows are a, a golden brown, and there's just a beauty to that. Because of our snowpack this year, I think we'll have, you know, our bigger waterfalls, Yosemite Falls, Vernal, Nevada always have water, but I think I'm being optimistic here, but I think there'll even be water uh, into the fall. And that doesn't always happen. Most years, typical snowpack year, Yosemite Falls will almost dry up, if not dry up. And then by the time we hit November, December, it starts getting chilly. And man, after we get our first snowfall, those waterfalls, if they have dried up, they come back right after that, that first snowfall. And to experience Yosemite in the winter is really, really special for a couple reasons. One is after we get a snowstorm, when you look at the granite walls, every little nook in and cranny on those rock walls is defined. And it, it's just like a whole nother world. And it'd be for a little while, while you've got the snow, it becomes a, a, a kind of a black and white picture, if you will. And for that reason, photographers flock here right after a snowstorm. They're out with their cameras because they want to get that definition right there. You know, as a naturalist, the, the birds have migrated, plants are dormant, and that layer of snow plays with the sound, you know, it kind of muffles sound. And so like it, it's extra quiet. So to, so to come here in the wintertime, it's not only for the scenery, but a ski resort in the park and to go cross-country skiing. Now the Glacier Point Road effectively becomes a cross-country ski trail. If you like to uh, downhill ski or snowboard, that ski resort has lifts. And so you can do that. So wintertime is just a really wonderful time. And of course, there's fewer people at that time too. That is special. It, it not only is the environment quiet, but because there's fewer people, it's, it's more quiet. It's a slower pace. And visitors in the winter, they can rent all that equipment in the park. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they even have free bus service. So if you're staying here in the valley and you don't like to drive in the winter, you take the free bus up to our, our ski resort. Where Where is the ski resort? Right off the Glacier Point Road. Oh, okay. Glacier Point, one of the musty places in the park when that high elevation road is open. So then that brings up another point. When winter comes, our high elevation road, which are the Tioga Road, Glacier Point Road, and the Mariposa Grove Road, those typically close for the winter. And so you've got a, a much smaller park as far as driving destinations are concerned. But if you want to visit those higher elevations, the only way you're going to get there is skis or snowshoes. I see. We got lucky the day we left the valley to head to Wawona to go to Mariposa Grove was the first day that the Glacier Point Road was opened. So we got to get up there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then we came home from our trip to uh, read that it was closed due to a snowstorm. <laughs> so we really, we really <laughs> yeah. lucked out with our timing. Yeah. And that happens all the time, especially spring and fall, open, close, open, close. And then eventually, you know, we just close. Yeah. And I will say visiting a park like that in the winter, I already mentioned we were there in May, but a couple of years ago, we went to Yellowstone in the wintertime. And that was just really magical to be alone, yeah. alone on the Geyser Basin, cross-country skiing, just the two of us. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. 
Yeah. I think everyone understands the, the lure of a national park, but sight is just part of the story. Sound is another big story here. And uh, to, you know, fully experience that place, you want to experience the soundscape too by listening. And so when you visit these parks, when they're quiet, you will have a different experience. And so to get that quiet, sometimes that means wintertime. Or just getting a little bit further off the road in whatever season you're visiting. Exactly. Popular hikes. We we did Vernal Falls and Nevada Falls. We started early. So, you know, there were only a couple of people on the trail. But by the time we made our way down, it was pretty crowded. But there are plenty other hikes and things to do. And you just get a little off the beaten path and it doesn't take that much to do. And um, you can be alone or just a few other people. Exactly. So we did summer and we did fall and winter. So we have one season. Oh, yeah. Springtime. (laughs) Springtime. Springtime is when the uh, waterfalls start to come back, typically. And in the valley, I remember when I first visited Yosemite, it, it was in the springtime. And I was expecting wildflowers. And there were the wildflowers. Uh, you really don't get wildflowers. I mean, there are some, but you're not going to see the Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz sort of, you know, running through the fields of poppies. That's just outside the park. And so a lot of people come here looking for wildflowers and they're disappointed because it's just too early for the valley here because spring has not sprung here. But just 2,000 feet below, you know, the foothills, that's where the incredible wildflowers are. And I think that's the other take-home message here is it's not just the park that's special here. It's the surrounding areas that are special. If you like springtime and spring wildflowers, you're exploring the foothills just outside the park. And so the canyon that I drive through every morning to get to work, I I live just outside the park in mid-pines. Man, my drives in the spring are just spectacular. And that's where you get those those hillsides covered with orange and yellow and, and purple wildflowers. I was one of those people who asked, where where can we see the wildflowers? And yeah. I was told, I don't know if this is across the board, but I was told that Hetch Hetchy probably has the best inside the park. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Hetch Hetchy is a, about the same elevation as Yosemite Valley. And the terrain is a little bit different there because you're essentially if you're hiking you're hiking on the north side of of the reservoir there and you're not getting meadows per se you're you're walking on essentially granite and yeah the flowers are are really great but i would say that's more really may before you start getting wildflowers even at that elevation so if you're coming before that you're going to want to be in the foothills got it so one thing I saw, and I, I believe it's a favorite of yours, I saw this alien-looking thing that I learned was called the snow plant, this bright red thing that just pops out of nowhere. Can you talk about that a little bit? What is it and what makes it special? Earlier in our talk, I mentioned my favorite plant family, the Ericaceae. This is one of those plants that's in that family. And what's striking about that plant is its color, um, or lack of color, I should say. It doesn't have any green. So I've, <laughs> I've described it as a, 
the psychedelic asparagus. Yeah, <laughs> I think everyone knows what asparagus looks like. Imagine that as a scarlet red color. You got the name snow plant because it blooms in the spring and oftentimes it is coming out of the ground, growing right through snowdrifts and hence the name snow plant. And of course, the mystery, or at least the initial mystery is how, if it doesn't have chlorophyll, how is it getting its food? The short answer is the snow plant is literally growing on a uh, type of fungus that is growing on conifers. And that fungus essentially has this mutual symbiotic relationship with, with the conifers. It is helping the tree absorb water and nutrients in exchange for sugars. So there's the mutual symbiotic relationship. The snow plant plugs into the fungus and it's stealing some of those sugars that are meant for the fungus. So it's essentially parasitizing the the fungus and ultimately the tree, if you will. And that's how it's able to get away with not having chlorophyll. Probably, you know, co-evolved under low light levels or something like that. And uh, over evolutionary time, somehow was able to tap into and, and steal some of these sugars that ultimately are coming from the tree. Now, here's the cool part. The, the Latin name for the uh, snow plant is Arcodes sanguinea. And if we translate that, um, flesh and blood, flesh and blood. It's essentially a botanical vampire, if you will. <laughs> and, you know, if you're into natural history, you know that the color red is the most powerful of all the colors. Powerful in that it has, think about it, how it affects just human beings. When we see the color red, if you see blood, you know, you react to that. Oh my gosh, there's that blood red color. Red is also sexy. So essentially what it comes down to is in the natural world, we call red the trigger color. It triggers a response. And that is, I'm in the mood for love, or it's red, I'm dangerous. And if you spend a little time, the Mariposa Grove is one of the best places to find these snow plants. If you hang out long enough, you're going to see there are certain animals that love the color red. And do you know what animals are attracted to red? Well, the, f- the first one that comes to mind is the hummingbird. Yeah. And that's just it. So one of my favorite things to do is, first of all, just take my time. And when I find a snow plant, I'm just going to sit down and relax. I'm going to just block out a half an hour, maybe an hour, and I'm just going to wait. And you're more successful if you can find like a little group of snow plants. But if you are patient, eventually you're going to find hummingbirds. And those hummingbirds are going to be attracted to those snow plants And let me tell you, there is nothing more beautiful than watching hummingbirds dance around nectaring on snow plants. It's a bonus. You're not only getting the plant, but you're getting the hummingbirds with that. So, yeah, I would check that out. Yosemite Notes uh, video that is available on the Yosemite website, which I'll have a link to that in the show notes because it was so fun to watch talking about the snow plant and showing the hummingbird. I enjoyed watching that. Oh, yeah. Do that. And uh, shout out to Steve Bumgartner. That is the mastermind who 
puts these Yosemite nature notes. So if you like that one, watch all those. They are really fabulous. Yeah. I've enjoyed, I haven't watched them all yet, but I've watched many of them. They're really great. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've covered all the seasons and I think we've heard your passion for certain plants. Do you have a favorite animal? Uh, uh, my favorite animal is the new one that I find tomorrow. But um, <laughs> if I uh, if I had to be pressed for a favorite animal, it might be the Mount Lyle salamander, or it might be the Ancetina salamander. It could be a tie between those two. Let's just go with the the Mount Lyle salamander right now. The tallest peak in the park is Mount Lyle. And so to get there, you you make your way up to Tuolumne Meadows, and then you put a pack on your back, and you hike in about 10 miles to the base camp, and then you climb up to Mount Lyle. The cool story about the Mount Lyle salamander, I'll try to paint a picture here. Everyone can picture a salamander. This salamander looks like a piece of granite, and the granite that we have in the Sierra is essentially gray, white, gray and white with little black flecks in it. That's what the salamander looks like. And uh, obviously that gives it some camouflage. You find these salamanders at high elevations. They were first discovered by the Grinnell party. Joseph Grinnell was a biologist. He was the curator of the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology down at UC Berkeley. And in the 19-teens and 1920s, he put together what was known as the Grinnell Survey. And essentially what he did for years was set up these study sites and surveyed the vertebrate life of Yosemite. And my prized book possession, I have a, a small library at home. My prized book possession is, it's called The Animal Life of Yosemite. Uh, and it's out of print right now. But one of the cool things that Grinnell did was after years of study, he put together what are called species accounts. That's a naturalist a biological term. And it's basically species account gives you the life history of whatever animal you're looking at. And he details where he found these animals, where and when. And Grinnell was known for his incredible attention to detail. He set the standard for field journals. And to this day, you still, if you're a field biologist, that's the debt of gratitude that you owe Grinnell. So anyway, Back in, I can't remember exactly what year, 1916, 1917, he was, and his crew were setting up pit traps, trying to find small mammals. Lo and behold, they found this little salamander that had never been described or discovered before. And he mentions this in, in his introduction, that this is like one of the highlights of that whole book right there and that whole study was this little salamander. And if you startle one of these salamanders, they will roll into a ball and roll down the hill. They, they use their tail as like a fifth appendage to, to climb up some of these rocks. They're essentially insect eaters. They've got this lightning fast tongue that they can shoot out and very quickly retract. I got wind, Sarah Stock, so Sarah Stock married to Greg Stock. So they are this amazing dynamic duo, if you will. And she's one of our, um, essentially our park ornithologist, and she, she does many other things. But she sent me off to um, the fact that there's this guy, uh, Sean Revito, who is doing this study on Mount Lyle salamanders. And he was essentially putting together the phylogeny. That's the evolutionary history. And long story short, 
is he found that that during the ice age, when glaciers smothered most of this park, not all the park, but most of the park, some salamanders were stranded on the peaks that protruded above the glacial ice sheets. And geologists have a term for that. They're called nunataks. And those salamanders that were stranded eventually on those nunataks speciated into these Mount Lyle salamanders. So if you're into special plants and animals, studying nunataks are the thing you want to do because you're able to essentially travel back in time and find these creatures that were stranded on these these islands in the middle of this glacial ice sheet. And the Mount Lyle salamander was one of those things. At least that's the thought. Wow, that's so cool. So, And his studies bear that out. So, yeah, really, really cool story. I love stories like that, that not only do you have an interesting just natural history story, but a really cool evolutionary history uh, tale to go with it. That's really amazing. What a great story. Well, we always end our conversations with our guests sharing their story. So can you share a moment, an experience, something where you think to yourself, wow, I am so lucky to get to be here in Yosemite. Oh, wow. I I pretty much say that every day, but I mean, I do have one story with that. I mean, the most touching, the story that immediately comes to mind was when I had a chance uh, probably 10 years ago now to meet one of my, my heroes, uh, Ed Wilson, E.O. Wilson. And uh, a buddy of mine in the park, Joe Meyer said, Hey, Ed Wilson's coming to the park. And I asked Joe, Hey, is there any way I could just meet this guy? And Joe essentially said, I'll do you one better. You can take him for a, for a walk. Are, are you familiar with Ed Wilson, Danielle? I'm sorry to say I'm not. Okay. So he is arguably the world's greatest living biologist and he, his specialty is ants, but he's a Pulitzer prize winning author. The book that really turned me on to him was his book called Diversity of Life. In that book, he highlights this. The other salamander that I mentioned, the Antatina salamander, it's a purple salamander with orange polka dots. And so Joe says, you can take him for, for a walk. You've got him for like 20 minutes. And he's just the nicest, most humble man. I was so nervous. And upon first meeting him, he's just so down to earth. I immediately felt comfortable and we're walking along. And as we're walking, Dr. Wilson, and he stopped me and said, oh, please call me Ed. I asked him, you know, you write about the Ensatina salamander in your book. Have you have you actually seen one before? And he said, you know, I've, I've never seen one. I've written about them. Is there a chance that we're going to see an Ensatina salamander? And I, I kid you not, I, I did bring a secret weapon. And at that time, it was my two kids, uh, Beck and Madia. And I had them running ahead 50 yards in front of me, overturning every log and uh, and rock and looking for this little Ensatina salamander. And I kid you not, as soon as Ed asked, is there a chance we're going to see an Ensatina salamander? My kids say, Dad, we've got one. We've got one. And at this point, Ed was uh, into his 80s. He's seen a lot of life. And... My son walks up to him and shows him this. And if you could see the the excitement in Ed Wilson's eyes, the expression on his face to have this salamander that he had written about but had never seen firsthand. 
And you know how that goes. You know, what would you rather do? Would you rather listen to a recording of B.B. King or would you rather attend a B.B. King concert live? Of course, you want to go for the, the live show. That's where the magic happens. So here we are, and we're with my favorite things in the whole world. I've got my naturalist hero, Ed Wilson. I've got one of my favorite creatures, an Encetina salamander. And you've got my family, my favorite people in the world, all together at the same spot in time. So what could be better than that? Nothing. Wow. That is, <laughs> that is a beautiful story. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much, Ranger Eric Westerland. Thank you. You've really inspired me, and I'm sure you've inspired many others. We look forward to seeing you in Yosemite National Park. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for, for having me on the podcast, Danielle. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybody's nps.com subscribe for free to everybody's national parks on apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app if you like the show become a patron just click on support our show on our homepage everybody's national parks.com we also appreciate if you write a review give us a five-star rating and tell your friends this helps more people find us follow us on twitter facebook and instagram we love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag Everybody's National Parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.